We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, which is in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12. We'll read here verses 29 through 32. And this is the word of the Lord as he gave to Moses and as Moses spoke to the people of Israel just before his death and before their crossing over into the land of promise. So let's attend to the reading of God's word with reverence, knowing that it is God's word. The word of the living and holy God. Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. And when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's pray for the blessing now upon its reading this proclamation and hearing. Lord, indeed, we do pray that you would bless not only the reading of your word, but its preaching now, and bless each one of us as we hear it, that we might take to heart the things which you would have us learn, that we would honor you, in this case, by right worship, as we consider the principle of worship that you set forth in Scripture We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seemed good to me to preach on something that's somewhat standalone this morning. Uh, As we noted earlier, on December 3rd, we have scheduled the Lord's Supper. And I'm planning to take a little time off around Thanksgiving, and so Mark Kohler will be here to preach for you on November 26th, so the Lord's Supper will be the 3rd of December, and November 26th, the week before that, Mark Kohler will be here, so I'm planning next week then to preach our preparatory sermon for the Lord's Supper. So rather than start a new series today and then have to wait a few weeks before we get into the rest of the series, I thought it would be good to preach something that's somewhat standalone here, though I have preached on this topic before as part of a, a broader series on worship, and someday I might uh, preach that again, uh, partly just because I know that we never got that up on sermon audio, and there are people who want to have that on sermon audio. But here's a little foretaste of that series if we, Lord willing, come back to it someday. And we're talking here about, this morning, what we call the regulative principle of worship. And if we understand that word, regulative, the expression is rather self-defining. If we say that the principle of worship that we follow is regulative, if we understand that, that's that's really all we need to say. But to give a little explanation here, 
it maybe helps to think of it as being the opposite or the inverse of a normative principle. A normative principle is like the principle for the general way that we live our Christian lives. God has give us, given us a normative principle. He's given us standards that we follow. And of course, if God has commanded something, we must do it. If he has forbidden it, we must not do it. But those things which he has neither commanded nor forbidden are really up to us. We dealt with that quite a lot in our series through 1 Corinthians when we were talking about liberty of conscience. And as we grow, of course, in godly wisdom, we learn to apply that wisdom better, and that helps us decide uh, on those things that might just otherwise be mere preferences, whether we'll do them or not. But basically, a normative principle would say that. If there is a law against something, you must not do it. If there's a law that says you must do something, you must do it. But everything else is really up to you. A regulative principle is sort of the inverse of that, in which we would say that unless you are told to do something, you are to consider it forbidden. And worship, as we see in our scripture lesson, and as we'll see from other scriptures this morning, is bound by a regulative principle. It helps also first to think of the fact that worship is covenantal. And if, Lord willing, I get to come back to preach a series on worship again one of these days, we'll, oh, we'll get into more detail as to why we say that. But worship is covenantal. God renews his covenant with his people, graciously condescending to meet with us when we gather for worship. And so the church, especially when gathered for worship, is the temple of the living God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 16. He says, you are the temple of the living God. Denny Pruto writes this, Worship is a service of covenant renewal in which God, who redeems a people for himself, and forms them into covenant and worshiping communities, pledges to meet with his assembled people for the purpose of fulfilling and applying his covenant promises in their lives, individually and corporately. True worship is the creature's act of giving honor and glory to God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, because the triune God is worthy of such praise, honor, and glory. Worship is our human response to the divine worthiness of God. We therefore ascribe honor, glory, and majesty to him. We reverence and fear him. We bow before him and serve him. Moreover, we also note, and I would have a whole sermon on this in a worship series as well, the Sabbath is a covenant sign, a picture of heaven. And the church is an outpost of heaven on earth. So if the church gathered for worship is a manifestation of God's temple, of heaven, that is of God's dwelling place, we need to recognize a few things. Number one, if I were to come to your house, who decides whether I enter or not and how I enter? Do I have that right? Or do you? Of course you do. God prescribes how we enter his presence, how we enter heaven. The second thing to consider is that worship is an entering into heaven. 
It's an entering into God's gracious presence. And so then third, based on those two premises, we draw the conclusion, therefore God prescribes how we worship him. This is one way of stating, again, what we call the regulative principle of worship. One very big reason that I was drawn to and joined the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America is because of its faithfulness, as I saw, to this principle. The scriptures we've read this morning are part of a mountain of Bible references that teach us this principle. Well, let's take the first promise or first premise rather that I stated and see what the Bible says. God prescribes how we enter his presence, how we enter heaven or his gracious presence. There's one way God has given us to enter his holy presence ultimately. John 14:6, Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me." That offends a lot of people in this world. But we know that God has set one way to enter into his presence, to have any kind of relationship with him. And that is through Jesus Christ, who is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. You don't have the way to God except through Jesus. You don't have the way to truth. You don't have truth unless you have Jesus. You don't have life, ultimately, unless you have Jesus. This is the only way. In Acts 4.12, We're told there is salvation, Peter says, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's a narrow way, as we read earlier in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Where again, I'll read that, what Jesus says here. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way, that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So God has set a narrow way. In other words, we we don't get to make up our own way. The regulations are confined as to how we enter into God's holy presence. We're not free to find our own way or go as we please to enter heaven. No more free to do that than I am to do as I please when I enter your home. Jacob's vision in Genesis 28 was of, you'll notice, one ladder between earth and heaven. And then in John 1.51, Jesus claims to be that ladder, as it were. So let me read here from Genesis 28. Verses 10 through 12. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then the scripture goes on to say, And behold, the Lord stood above it, or we could read that in the Hebrew as above him, and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land 
of which you lie, I will give to you, and your descendants also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. You notice there, there's this way, this ladder or stairway, it can be translated as, that that goes between earth and heaven in, in Jacob's dream. And then in John chapter 1, verse 51, Jesus says this to Nathanael, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The ladder to heaven, as it were, that that Jacob saw in his dream wasn't a ladder made of wood with rungs or made of steel or whatever material a man would make a ladder of. The way between heaven and earth, or from earth to heaven, was Christ himself. So God has determined how we enter his holy presence. It's through Jesus Christ, and there's no other way. And so secondarily, then, under Neath Christ, we're going to know that there have to be Christ-like and Christ-honoring ways to come to God. So our second premise then is, worship is an entering into a taste of heaven, an entering into God's presence. Exodus 25, 8 says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then verse 40 says, and See you make them, that is the, the, the place and the tools for worship, after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So God showed Moses a pattern for how he was to make these things, and they had to follow that pattern. Hebrews 8.5 explains that the priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Earthly worship is an entering into God's heavenly presence. So Hebrews 12, 22 through 23 can say, you, you have come to Mount Zion, as we've read as part of our call to worship this morning, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6 tells us, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So because of your union with Christ, you are already seated, as it were, in the heavenly places because Christ is seated there. And particularly, again, as the church gathers for worship, we experience that. We have a foretaste of being in God's heavenly presence. 
If God prescribes how we enter his presence, and of course it must be ultimately through Christ alone, and if worship is an entering into his presence, then who decides how we worship? That's, of course, our conclusion to these premises. God prescribes how we worship him. In Deuteronomy 12, we saw a few minutes ago, as I was reading, that the Lord warned Israel not to look to the world and to the false religions of the Canaanites and the people of the land that they would be entering to to decide how they would worship him. We're not to look at the cultures around us and see, well, that looks neat. How might we worship the Lord that way? This is something that I've seen a lot in the modern church, especially in more liberal circles, where people are always looking for new ways to so-called worship God. And yet God says we're not to look to the culture around us for these things. Now some, I think, misread what Moses is saying here and thinking that, well, he's just forbidding the, the more extreme things like child sacrifice, obviously, that was done here. So when the Lord your God cuts you off, or cuts off from before you, rather, the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. So, But as we look at that, especially as we look at it in the Hebrew, we find that it's not simply telling us that I don't want you, God saying to those people, I don't want you to practice certain abominable things like child sacrifice. He's saying when mankind makes up its own ways to worship, it eventually gets more and more abominable. And look at where it led these people. It led these people to worship their false gods in such a way that is clearly heinous and should be to any human being, but certainly to you, my people. For they even burned their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. But notice that's not the limit. He says they did every abomination to the Lord, which he hates they've done to their gods probably a topic for another day to talk about what kind of abominations were they. We see that in Deuteronomy listed in other places like in chapter 18, the sorts of things that that they did in terms of practicing magic and divination and the occult and other things like that. There are lots of other things they did that were quite wicked. Clearly abominations to the Lord. But the key here is that the Lord says don't inquire how other people worship their gods and think that that's going to please me. The key verse is the last one, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So we get from that the principle that we are not to add or take away from what God has told us to do in worship. And as we see unfolding through Scripture that that we live in different covenant eras. So for example, David did not have the freedom to say, well, I'll look back and see how did Abraham worship God. Abraham was a righteous man, 
And Abraham built an altar wherever he lived and sacrificed to the Lord that way. No, David had commands from God saying, no, you won't do that. You will actually sacrifice at my altar before the Ark of the Covenant. So we know that, that, we're, that our worship is prescribed for the particular era that we're living in as well. But in Deuteronomy 12 there, the Lord warned Israel not to look to the world and to false religions for ways to worship him. And all around us, people try to get in touch with God by all manner of things that came, ideas that came from the world. Contemplative prayer, which is really another word for transcendental meditation, emptying your mind instead of filling it with God's word, uh, through prayers to saints, uh, through walking a labyrinth, uh, through liturgical dance, uh, through any number of rituals and practices that are of human origin, or that, if they are of biblical origin, belong to a different covenant era. But God has expressly commanded us not to worship him in any way that he has not commanded for us in the here and now. Read Exodus chapter 39, and you will be struck by how many times when constructing the place and the utensils for worship, the tabernacle and its tools, the Israelites were repeatedly said to have done everything as the Lord had commanded Moses. Over and over again, they did this as the Lord commanded Moses. They did this, the next thing as the Lord commanded Moses, over and over and over. God cares about how he is worshipped. Some years ago, John MacArthur hosted a conference concerning principles of worship and addressing uh, modern worship and especially the charismatic movement. And he called it the Strange Fire Conference. Why did he call it that? Well, that comes from Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. We read this now. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire. The King James says strange fire. Who can read it as foreign fire? Before the Lord. Now let me stop and note that there's a lot of debate on what exactly they did. Some think they, they made their own incense recipe. They thought maybe this will smell better than what God prescribed to Moses. But I take it more literally than that. I think when it says that he, they used unauthorized or strange fire, the fire was the problem. They were supposed to take coals of fire that, from the altar that God himself had lit when the tabernacle was completed. And it seems that they thought any old fire would do, and they brought coals of fire from somewhere else. I don't know why they would do that, but they did. So the scripture says they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Does that sound to you like God doesn't mind if we just make up our own ways of worshiping him? They died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, that is, I will be held holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron didn't complain that God had killed his sons because he saw that they were not treating the Lord as holy and glorifying him before the people. God cares about how we approach him. He cares how we worship Him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, in verse 25, we learn that the forms of the temple worship 
were actually set forth. They were established by King David. These were commanded by God Himself. In Second Chronicles chapter 29, looking at verse 25, and he is talking about Hezekiah as he's reestablishing biblical worship in the temple. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with stringed instruments, with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. So, in other words, we see there that that's even the musical instruments that were used in the Old Covenant worship in the temple were commanded by God which ones would be used. They were, those commands were given to prophets, including King David, Gad the seer, and Nathan the prophet. So even which musical instruments were used and when and how they were used was commanded by God. It's a topic for another day, uh, but we note as we go on in that scripture, we find that, that the musical instruments were playing while the sacrifices took place, and then when the sacrifices were finished, the psalms were sung, but the musical instruments were not played. And so the fact that we don't have a new covenant, a New Testament command for the use of musical instruments might be telling us something. It's telling us that the sacrifices are completed, that Jesus has paid it all. Even the instruments, every little detail there was commanded by God. We'll discuss another time uh, how we distinguish between what is an element of worship and a mere circumstance, but just note that uh, it's the elements that have to be commanded. God, people will ask, well, did God command that, uh, that your pews will be that color? Or that? Well, no, you don't have to have a command for those things. There are certain circumstances that, uh, that we have that are surrounding our worship, what time you worship on the Lord's Day, that we worship on the Lord's Day is commanded by God. What time we gather together, well, there's some wiggle room for us to make those decisions. Those are circumstances. But the actual acts of worship themselves, the elements of worship, are things that need to be commanded by God. And we see that here because God prescribes how we enter His presence. Worship isn't entering into His presence. Therefore, God prescribes how we worship. If God has not commanded us to do something as an element of worship, we must not do it. So that's the, the simplest way to set forth what, what do you mean by the regular principle of worship? If God hasn't commanded something, consider it forbidden. The Shorter Catechism deals with this in relation to the second commandment. It says, which is the second commandment? The answer, the second commandment is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. What is required in the second commandment? The Catechism asks. The answer... The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. Then it asks, what is forbidden in the second commandment? 
We answer, the second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Then asking, what are the reasons annexed to the second commandment? The reasons annexed to the second commandment are God's sovereignty over us, his propriety in us, and his zeal and the zeal he hath to his own worship. God cares how he is worshipped. A fallen wicked man seeks his own way. He tries to enter by the broad road, by his own rules, and demands that God accept him anyway. But no one enters God's presence except by the narrow way that he has prescribed. Sinful, willful worship is man-centered, seeking to produce emotional states uh, to, and, and emotional responses, uh, seeking to entertain, seeking to promote human agendas, whatever. But again, as Danny Pruto points out about biblical worship, he says, the stated worship of God's people, on the other hand, is heaven-centered, heaven-directed, and he says in parentheses, directed to heaven and directed by heaven, heaven-flavored and Christ-tinctured. Then he notes, celebration, although it may have worshipful elements, is more world-directed and world-flavored. It is culturally conditioned. That's another thing, a topic that I can get into more deeply another time as well. But well, many of us in Reformed circles tend to make a distinction between what we would call formal worship and a celebration, even though we say worship is, a, is celebratory. And, and in certain contexts, we will speak of worship being a celebration or a sacrament being a celebration. But we make the distinction here between, between an earthly celebration and a worship service. So when, for example, Miriam, the women of Israel, took up timbrels and danced before the Lord and praised God for delivering them through the Red Sea and de defeating their enemies by drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, she didn't need a command from God to do that. That was not a formal worship service. That was a celebration. There were worshipful elements to it, singing the praises of God. That's a worshipful element, but it's not confined by the regulative principle. So she didn't need a command from God saying, go ahead and dance in my praise. It was, it was a, a culturally conditioned celebration. And as Pruto says here, there's a place for celebration. It differs from worship. We should understand and teach the difference. We build on the theology of formal Old Testament worship in the temple rather than upon the pattern of Old Testament celebrations. In the Reformed tradition, for example, weddings are not considered worship services. They are not stated meetings, but celebrations with worshipful elements and are culturally conditioned. So you'll have prayer and maybe psalm singing and the preaching of the word in a wedding or a funeral, for example, but those, those uh, are considered often, by many at least, celebrations rather than to say, in other words, that, that it's confined by the regulative principle, we consider it not to be confined. And so, uh, for example, Kim and I did not, uh, did not have any problem with having a, an instrumental trio playing during our wedding ceremony. But we wouldn't have dared to do that if it were a formal worship service. We did choose to sing psalms in our worship service, or in our, in our uh, marriage ceremony rather, uh, because we wanted to promote psalm singing and love it, but we weren't confined by that. As Pruto says, our aim, and here he's talking about worship, our aim is to draw people toward heaven and away from the world through heaven-directed worship. Our aim is not to culturally condition our worship. 
We ought not to be more concerned about being connected to the culture than being connected to heaven. Think this through with regard to our definitions of worship and the worshiping assembly. Our worship of God is more likely to be radically different than the culture, if it's biblical, than it is to look like the culture. Because we should look to God's word alone for what we do and how we worship him. So that's our exhortation for today. Look to God's word alone for how you worship God. Let's pray. Lord, keep us faithful to you in worship. Let it be heaven-directed, Christ-centered, and word-founded, that we may enter your presence in a way that is pleasing to you and worshipful of you according to your commandments, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.